Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Lori Leachman. She's an author and a professor of economics at Duke University. And we're going to talk about uh, her economic outlook and her work. So, Lori, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what was your research about until, uh, you know, the coronavirus, like, you know, ruined everything? And then has it changed since uh, the coronavirus? Well, I'm an economist, as you said, and uh, my fields are international and macro. And uh, so I started my career looking at things like the openness of economies and the level degree of integration in financial markets. And uh, generally out of that research, you know, I found that most economies had some degree of openness, meaning they traded and they had money flow and that that was increasing over time. And that basically financial markets and capital mobility was, was rising. And that then led me to studying things like the currency markets and exchange rates. And in particular, I was interested there in whether uh, exchange rates tended to move together. And uh, if so, you know, who was the leader and who was the follower and uh, whether things like uh, currency intervention actually worked. So things like the Plaza and Louvre Accord, where you had coordinated currency intervention, that kind of thing. What's an example of a currency intervention, by the way? Uh, currency intervention would be when the central bank is buying or selling currency. So if uh, the U.S. central bank is buying dollars, then uh, that would generally be the result of the concern that the dollar was too weak and they would be trying to prop it up. The general evidence is in this day and age, central banks, while they intervene in currency markets, they don't really change the value of a currency. What they do tend to do is dissipate some of the volatility. But if you really want to move a currency in a certain direction, you're going to need coordinated intervention with a a whole group of central banks. And that's because now there are just lots more players in the currency market. It used to be that governments were the main buyers and sellers of currency. But now with the globalization of trade, it's, you know, it's individuals, it's firms, it's all that kind of stuff. And then from there, I went on to uh, look at things about the anticipatory nature of financial markets whether financial markets are what we call forward-looking, meaning that they anticipate economic events and price them in to uh, the trading values, that kind of thing. It sort of has a corollary with uh, what's called the efficient market hypothesis and classical theory, which I'm not a proponent of. But I did find that uh, currency markets and financial markets more generally did have an anticipatory effect, that they did try to price in and forecast information 
and from that, then I went into looking at uh, trade and whether countries tended to run persistent trade surpluses or deficits, whether they had an imbalance in what we call the balance of payments. And uh, what I found is that it, whether that happened or not, it was very country and time specific. And uh, moving towards the present, there was a greater prevalence of a sustained trade imbalance. And then my last area of research was really focused on macro, in particular on fiscal processes and budgeting. Which countries ran persistent big uh, deficits and accumulated large volumes of debt and which countries did not, which were better and worse actors. Um, and that's that, interesting. Yeah, and it's very relevant now, okay? Yeah, can we, can we start with that? You know, yeah. which, which countries historically have been, uh, you know, running at huge deficits versus not, and what does that do to the countries in your estimation? Okay, so the sample that I looked at was the OECD countries, which is really the 25 most industrial countries. And uh, no surprise, the worst actors were Greece and Italy, which, of course, you know, Greece has had a debt crisis and Italy currently is running a debt to GDP ratio about 135 percent. By some estimates, it could go up to 160 percent, which is around the area where Greece is. So those um, what are called the pigs, Portugal, <laughs> Yeah, Portugal, Greece, Italy, Spain, those Southern European countries were all bad actors. And this, my research was before the crisis in 2012 in Europe. And so it just totally was borne out by uh, what happened there. The U.S. Uh, more recently ha has been a bad actor. And uh, the evidence there indicates that persistent deficits are the norm and rising debt is problematic. And the reason uh, in the US is that we consistently cut taxes. So it's not that spending just grows more than proportionally, it's that there's been a huge bias to cut the revenue side. And of course, we're living that now uh, in the aftermath of the Trump tax cuts in 2017, we had record deficits accumulation of debt and in response now the fiscal crisis in response to COVID-19 has just exacerbated that problem. What, what percentage of a nation's debt uh, do you think comes from a, a poor tax structure? So I would think Italy and uh, Greece have tremendous taxes as, as does most of Europe. Yes, but they have huge tax avoidance, okay? So it's not just about your tax rates, it's about what we call the coverage uh, who all is affected, and it's about the institutional quality of uh, the tax collection service. And, you know, what my evidence uh, or my research tends to indicate is that the countries, well, let me backtrack. Um, once I did the study about fiscal deficits and debt, that led me to thinking about, well, why are some countries bad actors and other ones are good actors. And, uh, and in particular, the Scandinavian countries are very good actors and they have a really broad social safety net. So then I started looking at some political economy sort of explanations for that. 
Is it because uh, certain populations have lots of poor people and so they're on the dole? Is it uh, because certain countries tend to have more conservative or more liberal governments and one government has a bias towards deficit or not? Um, is it because of the political business cycle, because they get reelected every four years, all that kind of whatnot? And basically what that research indicated was that uh, the primary, primary way that you can avoid sustained uh, fiscal deficits and accumulating debt is by creating hierarchy in the budgeting process. So if the budgeting process is very diffuse and subject to a lot of uh, political horse trading, then you're gonna have problems. But if you have a minister of finance that is empowered, if you have a congressional budget office that actually uh, has some voice, then you're going to get better fiscal outcomes. And uh, as a part of that, if you have a broader tax base, uh, if you have um, a good collection agency, then on the revenue side, no surprise, you're going to do a lot better. So uh, let me just follow that up by saying, you know, the IMF has done uh, a number of studies about this issue of fiscal deficits and debt to GDP ratios and what's problematic. And it used to be that the thinking was that a debt to GDP ratio over over 100% was, pro was problematic, okay? But the IMF started looking at things like your tax base, uh, your tax collection, uh, the ability to levy new taxes, and taking those sorts of things into account, different countries scored differently. So for the US, they estimate that we could have a debt to GDP ratio of approximately 150% before it becomes problematic because we have a large broad tax base and there are some areas where we can actually impose new taxes for so other what, what does that mean problematic what, like what happens when the you know the debt to gdp ratio goes quote unquote too high what bad things happen well the 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 huge concern is that a country will default uh, I mean, look at what's happening to Argentina right now. I mean, Argentina's in its third default in 20 years. I don't even know why people still lend Argentina money uh, other than they're just, you know, chasing yield without a real eye uh, to, um, to risk. And so that's the biggest problem is that a government might decide to default. And uh, their propensity to want to do that will be influenced by a lot of things, okay? Number one is the debt internally or externally held. Obviously, if most of your debt is hold, held by your own population, there will be a real consequence to default, okay? Is your debt denominated in domestic or foreign currency? If it's denominated in foreign currency, that's much more problematic because you're also now subject to currency risk. There's also what's called rollover risk. What's the maturity structure of your debt? Is it more long-term or short-term? The longer term the debt structure, the better that is because you're not having to refinance anytime soon. So there are a lot of factors that play into that. And let me just say for the U.S., beyond a really broad tax base and some areas to levy new taxes, 
we uh, issue all of our debt in our own currency. It is uh, basically what's called the exorbitant privilege of the dollar. So we don't face any currency risk. But we do have this problem that roughly 40% of our debt is externally held. And uh, this is, you know, Trump has, um, has threatened more than once to default on Chinese held debt. And that's essentially what he's speaking to. That external debt is foreign held and China is the biggest uh, holder of U.S. external debt. How much, how much debt does uh, China hold approximately? Oh God, I don't know the number. I can just tell you percentage wise uh, of all external debt held, China's got about 50% and roughly 40% of our debt is externally held. So I think Japan is number two. Uh, and then my guess is probably the European countries, some of the European countries are three, four, five. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of factors that influence your um, fiscal fitness, so to speak. And the U.S. is sitting in a great position because we just have more space and we don't face currency risk. Now, I will say there is some rollover risk because our debt, the average maturity structure of our external debt is around five to five years or something like that. Is there a, are there situations where, you know, debtor nations also have debt that other nations owe to them? And could there be a, a swapping or a canceling to relieve oh, some absolutely. nations? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, just like the Chinese buy U.S. debt, they also buy different European country debt, French debt, German debt. But the U.S. is just the dominant one uh, because, you know, the U.S. has been the global leader and because the dollar is what we call the global vehicle currency, which means that um, the bulk of trade is invoiced in dollars virtually 80 to 90% of all trade transactions are invoiced in dollars. Commodities are priced in dollars. And uh, for foreign governments, such as the Mexican government um, or the Brazilian government, when they issue their debt, they issue large quantities of it in dollars. And so they confront currency risk. So for the US, we just have a really special position and, uh, and I would say right now, given what's going on at the national level, what the Fed in particular is doing with monetary policy, uh, in particular, the Fed is essentially funding uh, the dollar market internationally, uh, it, it, it cements, it fortifies the dollar's position as uh, the global currency. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What do you mean that the, the Fed is fortifying it? You mean the Fed is, uh, what, buying a lot of uh, U.S. dollars? Uh, or what the Fed is doing is it is buying other countries' treasuries, what are the equivalent of our U.S. Treasury bills. It is buying other countries' bonds and giving them dollars, okay? It's essentially uh, the okay. of last resort for the global dollar market. And this is a really new function of the Fed. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's certainly not in their mandate. If I'm, you know, I don't know, I'm Azerbaijan, and, you know, okay. the Fed says to me, I'm, I'm going to buy a hundred billion worth of your treasuries. How do I know that 
the Fed hasn't just conjured this money out of thin air and it's used actual assets on hand to pay for my treasuries. You don't. So the okay. The simple answer to that is you don't. Okay. I mean, this is the other exorbitant privilege of the dollar, right? Uh, the fact that we issue all of our debt in dollars means that if we ever needed dollars, we could just print them to pay them off. Okay. And if you're Brazil and you issue your debt in dollars, you can't print dollars. You have to buy dollars, right? That's right. Okay. I see what you mean. For Brazil, it, the currency issue is a huge issue and the currency of denomination is a huge issue. For the U.S., it's a non-issue because we can always print our own money. Since there's, I don't know, there's probably a, a lot less printing going on. I mean, money is essentially electronic. What international agreement says, yep, you know, the number of electrons in your system equals, you know, 40 trillion and the number of electrons in mine equals 3 trillion. Like, you know, who is, who's really keeping the ledger of who has what and what's worth what? Uh, there is no uh, international ledger for that, okay? It's all about credibility. And this is why you want a credible central bank. One that the markets understand does not just create money whenever they need it, okay? Uh, in Mexico, when they had the peso crisis, that was the problem, that the Mexican central bank was just printing pesos as it needed, okay? And uh, there's been a big move in the last couple of decades to make central banks independent, to really hone their mandates so that it is price stability with economic growth, with an eye to employment, but price stability primarily uh, has been the function. And the reason for that is because if price stability is your goal, then you know you cannot print money because that will cause inflation. So an independent central bank with a clear mandate is essentially the foundation of credibility for a central bank. And then how they operate either reinforces that or undermines it. And uh, in the case of the U.S., I would say that uh, while we are not the most uh, conservative central bank, that, that mantle probably goes to New Zealand's central bank. We certainly have a track record that is uh, legitimate and consistent with the facts on the ground. So, um, I don't know, in response to the, uh, you know, the coronavirus mess, what do you see various nations doing that's either good or bad, or do you think everyone's just kind of, you know, still in panic mode, so everyone's financial position is deteriorating? Uh, well, everyone is requiring some major fiscal stimulus. And of course, you know, we had the first stabilization package. We we're in dialogue to try to get a uh, second package coming. The European unions have just, has just done a path breaking thing uh, by deciding collectively to uh, issue debt and use some of that money to as a stabilization program for uh, the European Union. I mean, everybody agrees that uh, when the patient is critical, you know, we can't toy with life support, okay? And fiscal stimulus is, uh, is a life support, okay? 
So that's absolutely necessary. This is part of the reason nobody's concerned right now about the massive uh, record-breaking deficit and the accumulation of debt. Well, why not, um, instead of, um, you know, maybe somewhat of a stimulus, but how about a universal um, forgiveness of a bit of debt? Maybe that would ease people in countries financially instead of escalating, escalating with more IOUs floating around. Maybe we well, can de-escalate it, deleverage it. There is a thing called the Heavily Indebted Poor Country Initiative, and it does just that. If uh, emerging markets and less developed countries make progress on a number of metrics like transparency in government and those sorts of things, then uh, there's a mechanism for debt forgiveness. Okay, uh, there aren't many countries that have qualified for that, and, I, and don't ask me what they are, the ones that have, there's only two or three, and, and I can't remember them. So there is that out there, but uh, you're on target with respect to that, that uh, for much of the developing world, this pandemic will put them over the edge and uh, debt relief will uh, clearly be something that we'll need to be talking about in the future. For the more industrialized countries, even if you have uh, a large debt to GDP ratio and persistent deficits, if you grow at a rapid rate, you can outgrow the burden of that debt. So let me give you an example of that. Uh, if you're a young person and you go to college and you take out college loans, the bet you're making is when you get out of college, your income will grow, you'll get a good job, and you'll be able to service those loans, i.e. pay down that debt, without it detracting from your current consumption because your income is rising. And that's what growth does to a country. If you have sustained, consistent, relatively high rates of growth, then the income piece will rise faster than the burden of debt piece, so that the burden of debt will be smaller over time. So right now, what's really the concern is not so much the debt to GDP ratio or the current deficit, but what will happen to future growth? And if we can't get that back on track, we and everybody else will have a real problem. Well, what are some ideas to help keep things at bay or keep them on track? Well, right now, uh, nobody is spending, <laughs> okay? And this is why government spending is, matters, right? Consumption, consumers have retrenched. Businesses aren't investing. In fact, we're, I think we're just at the front end of seeing a wave of major bankruptcy. So, you know, you have to have spending coming from somewhere. Spending is like the grease that keeps the system going, right? So that's the idea behind sending everybody a $1,200 check. They'll go out and spend. That's the idea okay. behind extending the unemployment benefits uh, till the end of the year and topping them up with whatever sum you choose, $200, $400, $600, whatever. That, the idea behind that is so that it will sustain consumer spending so that it, we don't experience a collapse because consumer spending in the U.S., and virtually every economy is the single largest spending component. In the U.S., it's 65 to 70% in any given year. And so... Well, what's happening, um, you know, there's certain businesses seemed essential, deemed essential, some not. So it seems like um, spending is very, it's channeled into a few areas, and it's now being, you know, 
redistributed very differently than it once was. And I wonder if that'll cause like preferential inflation and the prices of certain things and not others that you know become abandoned or can't be spent on. Well, I mean, the devil is always in the detail, right? And uh, the idea behind, and I don't call this a stimulus program, I call it a stabilization program because we are in no way to a point where we're stimulating the economy. We are trying to arrest the downturn, okay? The idea behind granting loans to firms to maintain their employment and to be able to pay their rent and all of that was absolutely solid, okay? The execution of that has left something to be desired, okay? Who got the money? It didn't, it didn't go, the majority of it didn't go to small businesses where we'd really like to see it. And just so you know, a small business by definition is any business with 500 or fewer employees. So they're not necessarily what you would think of as small, but they are the businesses where the bulk of job creation happens. And in, in the letting of that money, it was who had access, who had a good relationship with their banks, how those banks interfaced with the big regional banks, et cetera. So that was a problem and I think continues to be a problem. And let me just say that, you know, there are alternative ways to do it. We said, oh, we're going to give money to firms specifically for these sorts of things. And if they spend it on those sorts of things, we'll convert it into grants, i.e. have debt forgiveness. In Germany, they just paid people to stay on the job. Okay. And so unemployment didn't rise and that economy has rebounded a lot quicker. So the government could have done something of that nature here, but it went against the idea of free markets and competition. And it spoke of, of socialism, uh, which seems to be a really dirty word right now. Well, I mean, even with preferential shutdowns and openings, there's, uh, there's not a free market anyway. No, there isn't. And this is one of the big problems in the U.S. right now. I mean, if you, you know, Robert Reich has a new book, a couple of people are writing about, uh, his book is about democracy versus what he calls autocracy or, uh, or oligopoly or something like that. And basically what he's arguing is that in the U.S., we have lost competition because industry has become very concentrated and there's no countervailing power to that. And it is a legitimate concern here in the U.S. It should be no surprise to us that big businesses got the big sums of money, okay? And there are lots of reasons for that. Part of it has to do with the lack of antitrust enforcement. Part of it has to do with the nature of lobbying in, uh, in D.C. Part of it has to do with the decline of unionization in the U.S. because unions bring countervailing power in the labor market. And part of it has to do with globalization, the offshoring of low-skilled work and uh, the saturation of the low-skilled uh, labor market. And the last piece of it is technological change. Technological change is inherently biased towards large industry. 
So, I mean, there are policy solutions there, but that's a different issue from dealing with COVID and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, one, right. One of the things, you know, that happened this last week where the, the leaders of the big tech, you know, Google, uh, Apple. I know, they, they went before Congress and they said, oh, don't worry, we're, we're everything's fine. We're good. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, that is a problem. OK, that it, they are the example of the reduction in competition, okay? And so there are ways to deal with that, but that's, that's a different thing than stabilizing what is happening in the U.S. right now. Right, yeah, they're very different things. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, Lori, we're, we're just about out of time. What's the best way for people to find out more about your ideas? I mean, there's so many things you worked on. You know, we can't even begin to encapsulate it in this interview, but... Um, for interested listeners, like what are more resources for them from you? Well, uh, I ha you can email me at laurie.leachman at duke.edu. And if you go to the Duke University website in the econ department, I am listed under the econ faculty and you'll see some of my research and my academic vita and uh, all of that kind of uh, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I think email is probably the best mechanism. Okay. Well, very good. Lori, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.